Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray, and I'm here with my amazing co-host, <laughs> Ellen McGirt. Oh, I love to hear that. Thank you so very much, Alan. We've got a special guest today, and I'm guessing you're going to ask about the stock market, aren't you? Well, it, it, we have to, because it's been such a crazy time. It seems to have lost, I, I'll tell you, to me at least, it feels a lot like the 1990s, uh, right before the mm. bubble burst. That's not a comforting thing to say to anybody, but good grief. When you look at what's happening to stocks like GameStop and right. the, the disconnect from the economy. But the man we're going to talk to today is the guy with his hands on the data. And Ellen, you and I have talked a lot on this podcast about the importance of data in driving the future of business and the need right. for data if stakeholder capitalism is going to become a robust reality. Well, our guest today is the CEO of S&P Global. Doug Peterson, mm -hmm. and he is the data maven. Boy, he sure is. And there's a lot to ask him about, including some really interesting data about the role that women play in the workforce and the GDP around the world, global market cap, all this kind of stuff. But if but we're permission, Alan, I'm going to ask him the hard question right up top. About the market. Yes, yeah. I I, and, and I'll tell you, there's, other, there's something else we have to talk about. I mean, S&P got a black eye. Actually, that's not right. Yeah. It was more than a black eye. It got the whole yeah. body bloodied in the last financial crisis because it was that's one right. of the companies that was providing ratings to mortgage-backed bonds, which were at the center of the financial crisis. Now, Peterson wasn't there then. He came in afterwards. I think the company has changed a lot since then, but that's an important piece of its history. Let's find out what happened. Doug, it's so nice to see you here and welcome to Leadership Next. Thank you, Ellen. Thank you, Ellen. It's great to be here with you today. I want to ask the untraditional Ellen question on this podcast. I want to jump right in to the markets. And I was just joking that I know people must think that you know what's going to happen in the future because of your access to this data. But I do want to ask you if the stock market just lost touch with reality because it just doesn't seem to be tracking to the rest of the world at the moment. Well, let's remember a couple of things. The United States has the most competitive capital markets in the world. They're the most liquid. They're the envy of every other country around the world, the way that we run our financial system. We have a financial system which is more capital market oriented than bank oriented. Our interest rates are quite low. And there's also some sort of hope in the economy that we will see a big boom in the second half of the year once people start spending up all of that cash and capital that they've been saving. So I think that those are the fundamental uh, factors which are driving the, the capital markets, the, and let's call the stock market at this point in time, up to such high levels. Yeah, but we have to add to that. Uh, Ellen, thank you for asking this question, because everybody's sort of pounding their head on the desk trying to figure out what's going on. I mean, we do have a Federal Reserve that's keeping interest rates at an extraordinarily low level, and we have a new administration that's about to pump out $1.9 trillion of economic stimulus. That must have something to do with why the stock market is pumped up so high. 
Yeah, the interest rate level and the the stimulus which is going to be coming, these are things that are driving people to expect that there's going to be extraordinary economic activity which will drive the stock of price up. But on the other hand, let's look at volatility. Volatility is also way up. It's not as up as high as it was last year during the beginning of the pandemic when VIX went up to 80. VIX is typically in a 15 points. Now it's back up into the mid-20s, which is a little bit higher than normal. But people are also expecting high level of volatility. And over the last few days, we've seen the interest rates, long interest rates. So the 10-year, 30-year also starting to go up because people have started to uh, fearing inflation. So there's a lot of factors at play here. It's it's the interest rates, it's potential inflation, it's the stimulus which is coming. We haven't talked about the uh, new traders which are also in the market, which are, yep. have also brought a whole new level of volatility in trading. There is a little bit of that driving the market. It doesn't drive a lot of huge volume in terms of, of investment volume, but it does have trading volume. So are you personally in or out? <laughs> I'm, all, I'm, always, I'm always in. I Because of what I do, I can't trade. Um, I, the only thing I can do is purchase well-diversified investment pools or mutual funds or things like that. So I'm always in. You know, it strikes me, if you can't see this, listeners, but but Doug, is, um, his Zoom is blurred in the in the back. He's using that wonderful filter that blurs the, the, the back. And I imagine that anybody who's on a Zoom call from you, with you is like looking behind you to look for a sign, something that you're interested <laughs> Up, in. down. I know, something you've written on the whiteboard behind you. It's a, it's a tough well, spot. I'm, I'm an optimist. Anybody that knows me knows that I always will find a silver lining. I'm somebody who always likes to find the upside, even when we're in gloomy or dark days. I'm going to find something that will help us move forward and find a positive outcome from things. Something very different is going on in investing today, and I want you to talk about it. I mean, I saw a report out of Morgan Stanley recently that said we're now up to one third of all uh, managed funds being invested in ESG, in sustainable investments, whatever that means. And that's an issue for us to talk about. But people want to own things, want to own things that they think are doing good in the world. And the other thing that that report showed was that sustainable investments outperformed other investments. So what's going on? Well, first of all, investors are asking for new types of investment funds. If Whether you're somebody who's younger or you're heading towards your retirement age, you're, you're following carefully what's happening with themes around the environment or social activities like what we saw last year with uh, George Floyd or how people feel about their own companies and how they've reacted after COVID. There's a whole new level of consciousness of the purpose of capitalism, the purpose of corporations, and then people manifest that into how are my funds being invested? So the real demand is coming from what we call asset owners that are going to asset managers and saying, I want you to tell me more about where my funds are invested. And I want to make sure that they're doing something that is going to improve the planet, is going to make us have a better future. And because of that, you're seeing asset managers, endowments, others starting to ask those questions and invest in new ways. In terms of the performance, I do think that the performance is a little bit skewed because in the last year or so, the types of companies that are more likely to have a higher ESG score or a, a lower environmental footprint are the ones that have done incredibly well. So think about the influence that Tesla has as mm. a single yeah. stock on an index or 
some of the tech companies. Yeah, or even Microsoft that, or something. A Microsoft yeah. or, or a, a Netflix. Uh, some of these companies have had really extraordinary returns over the last year. So there could be some influence over a one-year period. But I do think that we're going to start seeing a lot of analysis around the performance of sustainable funds. By the way, we had the, one of the very first sustainable indices ever. It was the Dow Jones Sustainability Index. It's 20 years old. Right. And we had that index. It's been around 20 years. So we do have the performance of different uh, ETFs that use our sustainability indices. And generally speaking, they track the market pretty closely, but they, they do um, over some periods have outperformance. Well, that leads me to a question about the screens themselves. Um, are they good? Can we trust them? Can they be gamed? Do they evolve? And what does that look like from your point of view? Yeah, that's all of the above. They can be gamed. They do evolve. They, they mean all sorts of different things. And that's one of the areas where we ourselves are trying to put out our own indices, which are sustainability or ESG indices with very, very clearly defined criteria that are always going to be the same no matter what day of the week or what month it is so that you always know exactly what is in there. You're absolutely right that this is going to be an area where people show so much interest that they want to uh, they want to know what's in there. But there's a lot of different criteria. So you have an E, an S and a G. So you have environmental, you have social, you have governance, you have some that want to see all three of them. You have some people that just want to see the, the climate aspect of the funds. And so it's very important that an investor who is looking to get into sustainability read the fine print. You need to read yeah. the fine print and know that if you're investing in a sustainability fund or an ESG fund, that that's exactly what they're going to invest but Doug, in. Doug, you know, <laughs> no one reads the fine print. They don't. <laughs> so that can't be the answer. So, but that's one of the reasons why people trust indices and they trust, for example, our brand, the S&P 500 is a long-term 50 plus year benchmark, which the people use to benchmark and people know what is in the S&P 500 and the criteria around it. A year and a half ago, we launched the S&P 500 ESG index, and we looked at all of the 500 companies in the in the uh, S&P 500, and only about 340 of them complied with the screen that we put in place. And the screen took out companies that produce certain types of weapons. It took out companies that had certain level of carbon production, certain social scores, et cetera. And it narrowed it down to a little bit fewer than 340. And that fund uh, or that uh, ETF that comes out of the indices has outperformed the S&P 500 by about 50 basis points oh my the God. last year and a half. Well, 50 basis points. Okay. But that's not, you're talking about an index fund. So that's a pretty good difference, 50 basis points. And that's an index. Yeah. And it's started off, uh, UBS uh, had the first fund coming out with that. We now have five organizations who have launched ETFs or mutual funds with the S&P 500 ESG index. You mentioned being optimistic, which is good. You also mentioned the occasional dark days, which is tougher. And S&P played a central role in the last economic crisis. And I'm talking particularly about ratings and, and mortgage-backed bonds and all of that stuff. You came on afterwards. You came on in 2013, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. Oh, tw so, no, 2011 into the Standard & Poor's ratings business and 2013 as CEO of the company. Got it. I'm curious what you think about that looking back and what you thought your mandate was as, as leader and, if, and, and what's changed? 
Well, when, when I came on, I knew that the board of directors of McGraw-Hill was looking for somebody who would come in with a markets background, with a global business background, but also who would have a regulatory sensibility and sensitivity. The business of S&P Global Ratings at the time had very high standards for trying to always get the ratings right. They had firewalls in place, but it was really managed more as a publishing type business. Mm. You didn't have, we weren't regulated. We were regulated in Mexico and Argentina. Uh, there were no other regulations around the world. It was the standards were not really set in a way that it was what I would have thought of as a financial services industry. And what we got wrong was in the modeling where every single player in the market had the exact same assumptions that if you have mortgage-backed securities, that every single market is going to go down at the same time. And we had those models, the bankers had those models, the investors had those models, and they collapsed. And they collapsed because the underwriting was lousy of the mortgages. We weren't doing enough work to look through to the ultimate mortgage, how they were being underwritten. And the banks had huge balance sheets. And we also weren't talking across the entire organization. Our mortgage-backed security teams weren't talking to the bank teams who weren't talking to the sovereign teams. And so we had to put in place a whole new set of tools and ways that we would learn from each other in the organization. The second thing I'd say is that we're now heavily regulated and we've embraced that. I think the entire industry is better off because of that regulation. It took a while for us to get into it and really understand and put in all the policies and procedures in place. Um, but we've been running like that now for 10 years and the entire industry is much better off because of that. And then the last thing I'd say is that the test of the quality of our ratings and our criteria, we just lived through it, which was COVID. We saw a okay. major, major financial stress and we saw entire industries completely, totally stressed like aviation and hospitality and yeah. certain industries that their sales went down to 5, 10, 15, 20% of what they normally are. And we were able to incense the stress test of our ratings processes, our ratings criteria, and we passed through that. And I think it's our ratings have performed as we would have wanted and we would have expected yeah. now that we've had 10 years of these new approaches to our policies and procedures. Yeah, well, let's not do that stress test again, if you don't <laughs> yeah, mind. Exactly. <laughs> we're done with that <laughs> Too one. Too much. I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, who is the CEO of Deloitte US and had the good sense to sponsor this podcast. Thanks for being with us and thanks for your support. Thanks, Alan. Pleasure to be here. Joe, we all know that what gets measured gets managed. Folks like your colleagues at Deloitte have spent a century building up metrics to keep track of shareholder return. But how do we measure stakeholder return? This is still all about measuring attributes that do in fact drive shareholder value. Because over the long term, if you are driving indicators that represent value creation to your stakeholders, that will translate into premium returns to your shareholders. So this is really about as lengthening our horizon it's a combination of quantitative and qualitative metrics. There's an enormous amount of work to be done, but you're seeing a real sense of urgency around this. I think that's a really important point, that in the long term, over years, decades, the interests of shareholders and the interests of the stakeholders converge. But in the short term, they can often go in different directions. They certainly can. But what you see is leading investors encouraging the companies they invest in to make certain that they are building 
building and leading sustainable enterprises with the objective of maximizing shareholder value over a long time. Joe, thanks for being with us. Alan, it's a real pleasure. Look, I want to go back to this change in the way people are investing and people uh, asking for ESG screens. Is that, do you think, a passing fad? Maybe like SPACs or like investing in Tesla? Or, or is something more fundamental going on that's going to continue to evolve in the way people look at their investments? Yeah, th- this is a really important change. It's fundamental and it's not just going to be a fad. This is not going away. And we saw this. I think one of the signals of that was when the business roundtable changed the definition of a corporation from being about only serving shareholders to serving all stakeholders. And when the large businesses represented by the BRT make a change like that, that's actually a signal that this is something that's permanent. And in your, you and I have talked about this before, and Ellen and I talk about this on Leadership Next all the time, but I'd be curious of your view because your view is more informed by data and Ellen and I just listen to great stories and, and form our <laughs> view around stories. But why is this happening? I mean, this is you're talking about a fundamental change in the way the economy works, the way investors think, the way businesses think. Why do you think it's happening? Oh, that's such a tough question. I, I'm going to give you a couple of theories. The first theory is our employees. About 50% of our employees globally are millennials. And in places like India, 70, 60, 70% of our employees are millennials. They care about things that are very different than some of our other employees. And we want to listen to our employees because our employees are also our clients. If you think about the types of things that we do, we're providing services for financial institutions and corporations to make decisions about risks and about investments. And even though the person who I might be speaking with or our commercial people are working with our senior executives, the users end up being other millennials. And so we know that there's this big shift in the attitude of millennials around purpose and around what they care about. And so we see that recently I was having a, an employee roundtable with some of our younger employees and they wanted to know why we didn't yet have a, a 401k with an ESG option. Mm-hmm. And we're S&P Global. Mm-hmm. We still yeah. didn't have one. We're, we wow. now are getting one in place. But that was one of the big deals was they wanted to know why we didn't have one yet. So my first wow. point would be that this is really important for our employees and our clients and and especially the, the younger people. The second is that I think people are starting to see an impact from the ESG or the social purpose of a firm or the environmental impact of a firm. So as an example, the question of what about the extreme weather patterns that we've seen, are those really caused by climate change or not? I think everybody's come to the conclusion that they are. Maybe there's a difference of opinion of how long it's going to take. Is it 2050? Is it 2060? Is it one and a half degrees or two degrees or zero degrees? But I think people are starting to truly see the impact and they see it in weather pattern changes and fires and the freezing that we saw in Texas. I think that people are starting to take it into their consciousness that this is something that people need to start caring about. I want to add one note to this, what we're talking about right now, for the millions and millions millions of people who are unbanked or underbanked, access to real financial investment products just doesn't seem to 
ever be possible for them. What's your thinking on this or what's your best wisdom on this or how to make sure that everybody gets a chance to, to have access to a retirement account, a savings account, or just some access to a market bigger than a savings account or God forbid, a check cashing place? Yeah. Well, the first one is something that we've talked about for years, and I would love to see become a more critical part of any curriculum of a high school, which is just basic financial education. We are at a point, though, where through technology, there are more options for people to have tools to plan for their long-term financial well-being. Something like a Robinhood or other very low-cost financial organizations that can provide either either robo-advising or trading or even savings. So I do think that we're at a turning point for tools that people can use to be able to save for the long run. But we have to make sure that people know how to get to those and know how to use them. And that's where the education comes in. Got it. Let's talk about change pays. That is a big data and research project. And I have to tell you, I was really happy to see you weigh in in this way. Could you tell us about it? Yeah, this was um, about seven years ago when I first became CEO. We wanted to choose a couple of big themes that we felt could make an impact on our organization to do special research. And we said, we think that there's an opportunity to provide special research about the role of women in the economies and societies around the world. And so our women economists did this research where they started off with the supposition that economies where women are more economically active have stronger, more resilient economies. And that was the supposition, and they did the research, and it proved out to be true. An economy like Norway's, where the women are very active in the economy with what we define that it is full wage-paying roles, not, not working at home for free, but wage-paying roles, have much more resilient, broader economies. If the United States was operating at the same level of economic activity of the women in the U.S. versus Norway, our economy would be 6% larger than it is right now. So $1.8 trillion larger economy if you had the same equivalence. And most of the others around the world would be even more than 8%. They could be 12 or 20%. So we think that it's important for us to continue with this approach to providing fundamental research that that helps economies understand how critical the role of women is. Yeah, that really gets to my last question, which which is this. Uh, you've made a compelling case that business is changing and that investment is changing and that people are putting more emphasis on, on people and planet, environmental and social goals. But it took pretty much 100 years to build the financial infrastructure that forces companies to pay attention to shareholders, right? <laughs> Shareholder return is something we know how to calculate very well. It's going to take a lot of time to build up a similar infrastructure around these social and environmental goals. And S&P obviously is an important player in that ecosystem. Are you making the investments at S&P these days that you need to make to support a world where environmental and social goals are a much bigger part of how we hold companies accountable? Well, first of all, for our own company, we made a decision three or four years ago that if we were going to be a credible rater and benchmarker and provider of data and analytics on ESG, we had to have the highest standards ourselves. So we felt that we have to have our own very high standards around environmental goals, social goals, and as well as our governance. When it comes to what we see in the market, you talked about 100 years. Right now, we're kind of in that first couple innings 
of a game or a sport where actually the rules are just starting to be defined. And there are many different raiders, many different organizations pulling together information. There's kind of an alphabet soup of NGOs that are looking at approaches to disclosure, to how you think about investing, et cetera. We're taking a role where we want to be active in all of those. We feel it's very important that we work collectively with the financial institutions, with the regulators, with other organizations, the large accounting firms to set standards and try to move on those fast. And at the same time, from a commercial point of view, we've done acquisitions of a climate-related reporting firm, of a standard-setting reporting firm. We've built a ratings service. It's called an ESG evaluation that comes out of our ratings business. We have now over 7,000 companies that we have ESG ratings on. We have our indices, our sustainability indices. So we also see this as a way that we'll use our brand and our brand strength and our, our data and analytical capacity to build products and services well for this market. I will take that as a big yes, uh, Doug <laughs> Peterson. Thank you so much for spending time with us on Leadership Next. Great. Thank you so much. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 